for joining us live on YouTube. Uh, we are War Cry Podcast. We have a um, uh, our live streaming today from the Yakima Nation and Yakima Valley. This is season two, episode five. We have a guest today, and our intent is to learn about missing and murdered Indigenous women and people in the Yakima Valley and Yakima is impacted by violence in urban areas. And we are joined today by a guest that has written numerous articles on this topic. This topic can be very sensitive and triggering. So we just urge you to take care either before, during, or after this uh, live streaming is happening. So again, welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. We are located on the Yakima Reservation in uh, uh, Eastern Washington State. And we thank you for joining us for this episode. We are live streaming during the noon hour Pacific time. My name is Emily Washings and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibishi, and Lucy Smartlout. Our guest today is Tammy Ayer with the Yakima Herald Republic, which is a local newspaper. And for announcements, we want to uh, acknowledge that we have wildfires taking place right now in the Yakima Valley. Everybody that is in the Yakima Valley and anybody that has allergies is aware of this. And these are a couple of photos of just the haze that's happening. And uh, to everybody that's uh, fighting the fires or having to evacuate, our thoughts are with you at this time. Um, I want to, uh, before I have our guests introduce themselves, I want to uh, just read a, uh, a quote from our previous session. You know, uh, we had been on the Operation Lady Justice Northwest Listening Session last June 2020. And we covered a podcast about that. And for one of my questions that I asked, uh, I had, um, I asked, we have one woman from the Yakima Valley that was found in the 1980s and she hasn't had DNA taken. That technology did not exist at the time. In order to take the DNA now, it'll cost at least $5,000 to exhume her. The Yakima County Sheriff has considered this a priority. However, they have listed cost as a barrier to collect the DNA. Is there a federal process or mechanism to support this process? It will mean justice. Again, this um, Operation Lady Justice listening session was with the White House, a different uh, presidential administration at that time, and the FBI and a, a Department of Justice. Um, and so this is kind of the uh, topic that we're gonna be covering today with our guest, Tammy Ayer, and I'll have, turn it over to her to introduce herself. Thank you, Emily, and thank you all ladies uh, for inviting me to participate today. I'm honored to be here and to talk more about this issue. I've been at the Yakima Herald Republic for a little over six years now, and I've reported on this issue for uh, around three, I think, and, and it really started, uh, Emily, you were one of the first people that I talked to about this issue, and I have to say, not being from this area, I'm originally from Indiana, um, and you kind of filled me in on just getting started. I was staggered at this, um, at the numbers, missing women, missing Native women, the, the violence. And so it's it's gone on from there. And really, uh, my coverage at first began with legislative issues that Gina Mossberger had brought forth to try to get a better idea of the data and the numbers of uh, missing Indigenous women we have in Washington State. And from then on, um, it kind of began with that level, but really my main focus these days, and I kind of felt this way from the beginning, is to tell these women's and these men's stories. I think it's important that their names and their stories be kept out there. Uh, they're not just seen as numbers, statistics. Uh, people need to know uh, who they were and who they are, and the entire community needs to be concerned about this issue. Thank you very much, Tammy. I'm going to turn it over to Robin to ask her first question. Take it away. Hi, Tammy. It's really great to see you. 
Um, so you did kind of go into a bit about uh, starting and speaking about MMIW and MMIP. Can you just elaborate a bit more like why that was important to you? And I, I think I heard you mention before that you just recognize a deficit of um, those types of stories and bringing those stories out here in Yakima Valley. Could you speak a bit to that in your experience? Sure, thank you. So I come from a history background. As a reporter, I've been a reporter, professional reporter since 1989, but I also have a master's degree in history. And when I was working on my degree and as a reporter, I think it's important for all stories to be told. It's frustrating to me, and I came across this over and over again in my research when I was, you know, earning my master's that you'd go back into old newspapers and it's <laughs> only certain stories were being told. And, and I, I hate that as a reporter now, I, looking back on that, that's very frustrating. But for a complete history, and history is never going to be complete because there's so many stories. Everyone has a story. But we as journalists and we as historians need to tell those stories as completely as possible. And frankly, yeah, when I first started reporting on this issue, again, I had no idea. I had heard about um, the cases of missing indigenous women and missing and murdered indigenous women down on the border with Mexico. And then I heard more about the issue in Canada and the Highway of Tears, but uh, frankly, I didn't know the scope of it in the United States. And when I got here and again, when I started talking to Emily about this issue, and um, I found it very frustrating that uh, fairly often, and I can't say this was always the case, but fairly often uh, stories would just be really short. There's a brief uh, that a woman was found. A woman was found here. A woman's body was found here. And that was it. There was no information about who she was. Who was she? Who were her family? Would they miss her? They, I just was frustrated with that. And that really drove my focus again toward the families, toward telling these women's stories and men's completely, because not only is it important now, but it's important for the future. So. <clears throat> Do you have follow-up, Robin? Uh, yeah, I appreciate you bringing up when we first talked, Tammy. I remember that moment clear as day. I was on a trip, actually, and I got a message. And uh, I really remember, I'm a very visual person, but I remember laying there thinking, why is this reporter asking about MIW? And then I remember this really, uh, this fan that had really sharp blades that was above me. And I, I don't know, something about it, it just, um, it really made the moment seem really sharp and real because these kind of issues bring up so much. And, you know, a lot of us were taught, you know, these are some things that we whisper. This is a silent epidemic. Um, this is a silent crisis that people uh, aren't attentive to. And I remember, um, you know, as I always do, I always reference our Yakima Nation Tribal Council and our, um, we didn't have an MMIW committee at that time. And then I had thought after I sent that initial message, will these women and their families think they're alone if there's not any Yakima that's gonna comment on record? And so I went back to you and I said, if you don't get a response, I will um, be on record with this. Um, and so, I appreciate you bringing that up and kind of even illuminating that for our audience a little bit, the process of speaking up for our women. Um, it can take a lot and um, on both sides of it. I wanna bring us to um, the case that we're talking about right now um, with the woman that's unidentified, even though there's DNA technology that exists to help identify her, um, she remains unidentified. The DNA technology did not exist um, at that level at that time. And we're going to bring up the article that she wrote on December 15, 2018. Lower Valley human remains discovered in 1988 to be exhumed for DNA. And I wonder if you can just uh, share with us about, you know, who uh, she is, you know, from what we know about her so far and, and, uh, yeah, so who, who is she and what do we know about her so far? Sure. Well, and I use the reference of Parker Doe because she was found near the unincorporated town of uh, Parker. She was very close to the Yakima River 
Um, she was found by a horseback rider. And the interesting thing is she was very close to the road. It's a, it's a dirt road that goes off of uh, Parker Bridge Road and it runs parallel to the river. And people had used that. It's a, it's a dirt road, as you can see. Um, and people had used it for various, people would go back there and go fishing and such. But if you're in a car, you didn't have the viewpoint of the person on horseback. So this rancher was out for a horseback ride and he could see her lying um, down in that area. And it's, it's very much overgrown now, as you see here, it's quite thick with uh, these trees. This is a narrow leaf willow tree. There's some choke cherry, uh, but where uh, the county corner, Yakima County corner, Jim Curtis is standing with his uh, cadaver dog, Justice. You can't really tell too much from the photo, but there's a very slight rise. And the way she was, um, her head would have been closest to him and the road would be to your left and her feet were closest to the road. Horseback riders saw her. She still had her clothing. Um, he called and pl multiple police agencies came as usual. This is tribal land here. Um, FBI, BIA, tribal police, Yakima County Sheriff's Office. And they came and then um, the next day, uh, authorities with the Green River Task Force also came. And that wasn't because they suspected the then unknown killer was responsible for this, but they had so much expertise in collecting information from um, older crime scenes. They believe, uh, they estimated that she had been there for possibly four to 10 months. So um, she, her, her skull was removed as you saw in some of those photos, it was removed. It was taken to Central Washington University for a reconstruction, a clay model of her head. Uh, that was the first time the sheriff's office had ever done anything like that. Unfortunately, um, even the people who put it together were not hopeful that it would help. And it only resulted in a few tips that didn't really go anywhere. It's just not very good, um, even though it was considered new technology at the time. What they're hoping to do today is get a digital reconstruction of her skull and her face. That's going to be much more accurate. Even if they did a clay model today, it would be much better than this one. But at the same time, they don't even need to do that anymore. They can do a digital reconstruction. It'll be surprisingly accurate. Um, one in particular, there's one that they do in color, uh, Parabon Technologies, I believe it's called, and it, they've, done it with uh, people who are living now and it's really, they take the DNA um, and then they do the re digital reconstruction. Um, we're getting closer to exhuming her. The funding is in place. The coroner at this point is just waiting to hear back from West Hills Memorial Park, which is where she's believed to have been buried. Um, her skull was at Central Washington until very recently. It's actually at the King County Medical Examiner's Office now. And when she is exhumed, officials with the King County Medical Examiner's Office will be here for that. The, the coroner has also asked that tribal officials come. Um, they'll probably be FBI, <clears throat> other officials. So, um, and he wants to do it as soon as possible. If he can make arrangements, it's a lot of coordinating. It's a lot of agencies to get together. But um, if he could, he would do it tomorrow. I mean, he said at this point, everything's in place. It's just a matter of hearing back from West Hills and setting that date and then getting everyone there. And at that point, um, everyone's confident. He's fairly confident. The sheriff's office investigators are confident she can be identified. As you mentioned, that technology has just, DNA technology has changed drastically. It wasn't even a thing then, really. Um, confident she'll be identified. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, from my quick calculations, we're at 33 years of having her unidentified. Yep. Um, and I just want to give a note, you know, since she was found on the Yakima Reservation and we do have families that have missing loved ones that, you know, if, if this is your loved one or we come to find out our hearts um, are with you, I, I think this is a very difficult topic to discuss and talk about it. Um, and I pre but I appreciate the amount of information because we need to know these kind of processes 
um, unfortunately, for the amount uh, that we have here. Uh, I'll turn it over to Lucy for her uh, question or insight. Thank you for the information, Tammy. Um, it floors me to think about 33 years of not knowing, uh, 33 years of having family members who just don't know what happened or even to know that somebody, you know, could have possibly been looking for her. And um, I don't know that it just really kind of um, resonates somewhere different with me right now. You know, when we're, when we're talking about it and we're actually, you know, looking at the pictures and then you're, you're providing the explanation behind it. Um, so I just want to ask like, what prompted the exhumation um, and what would, like, let's say hypothetically, some families wanted to do something similar, like what, what would those processes be from your knowledge? Well, it's interesting. Um, the share, the current Yakima County coroner, Jim Curtis, he's been in office for a few years now, and he has really been the one who has pushed this issue. And he feels very strongly, he, um, he feels very strongly she needs to be identified and she needs to be returned to her family for a proper burial. And he has really been the one who has pushed this. Um, the sheriff's office has had the case the whole time. That's another issue as to how they came to have the case. But I spoke with the investigator, um, there's a new investigator on the case. I mean, he's not new to the sheriff's office, but he's new to his position, which is head of detectives. His name's uh, Jason Pepper. Uh, the previous uh, person that I spoke with there was, um, he retired in late January, late January. Yeah. But the whole process of exhumation, um, it's much more complicated, I guess. I, I think sometimes uh, people think it would be, it's, first of all, it's, it's quite expensive. Um, and, and I don't know if uh, private citizens can have this done. I do believe they can. And this is something that you hear a lot about on TV shows and movies and this sort of thing. But frankly, it doesn't really happen that often. I was involved with the story back in Indiana where several exhumations took place, but I did not actually cover it myself. I was not there. I was not present at the time. Um, and that was an Indiana State Police investigation. But I think what the message that I would like to get across in this and, and realizing and, and understanding that, that she could have family members here. I try to be as respectful as possible in my reporting on this issue. It gets a little, um, I understand it can be extremely triggering at times, talking about what's happened to her in the 33 years since she was found. And I, I, I think at times she's been treated very disrespectfully. And so I, I try to be mindful of that in my coverage. But you know, what's really gonna be important here is when we get her exhumed is that DNA. Uh, family members, if they have a missing loved one, they can provide their DNA, they can give a DNA sample at their local law enforcement agency, and that will be entered into a database. We are hoping that when her DNA is taken, uh, there is some somewhere and there can be a match. Um, but I guess since I've never covered something like this before, I'm trying to be as respectful as possible, but also as explanatory as possible in the right way. So. Do you have a follow-up for Lucy? I do, just really quickly. Um, when we had first, when you were first doing your introduction, you had mentioned that the community should be concerned. And um, I just wanted to get a little bit more insight as to why does our community need to know about this? Um, why should we all be concerned? Well, and that's, I, I try to stress that as much as possible in my coverage because we are a community. This entire area, we're on uh, Yakima ancestral lands. First of all, that should be acknowledged. That should always be acknowledged. And we are all part of this community. I, I have to say, having previously lived in uh, places that are very flat, without mountains, without ridges, um, this literal ridge between the upper and lower valleys, uh, that was another thing that kind of surprised me that there can be people who have lived here their entire lives and they don't know exactly what's, they don't know what's happening on the other side of that ridge. And I'm, 
um, a naturally curious person, which is good for my work, but I'm always asking questions. I'm always learning. I think that's important. So the repercussions, what kind of came to me was um, I was reading through some old stories. <clears throat> These were stories that were written in the early 90s when um, around the time when one woman was found and there was there were some meetings. Uh, Inslee came to town. I think at that point he was a congressman. Uh, you know, people were saying this needs to, something needs to happen here. Jurisdictional issues, other issues, cases not being taken seriously. Um, and a reporter, I can't remember who it was, mentioned in one of his stories, and it was actually near the end of the story, I think it was the last paragraph. It should have been a story in itself. He added up, a, of, I think he mentioned 12 or 13 women, the 12 or 13, and he said, um, I think almost all of them were mothers, and among those women, they left behind, um, I want to say it was at least two dozen children. These are children who, um, and they were of varying ages, grew up, and maybe they were so young. I know of one woman who was six years old when her mother was murdered, and she barely remembers her mom. She just really doesn't remember her. To teenagers, and you know, when you, I, I thought of that, um, you're a child, you're growing up, or you're a teenager, and you have to deal with that severe loss. How's that going to affect your life's path? Everybody should be concerned about this because those are children, those are people in the community, and that can ripple out and have long-lasting effects. It can change their lives, um, and it can have greater impacts in the communities. Everyone should be aware. And safety, everyone should be aware that... Um, I think all people are encouraged. I think people are encouraged to stay safe and make sensible decisions. But at the same time, um, areas that are much less safe—that's um, people should not have to grow up in fear. So, thank you. I'm going to turn it over to Patsy for her question or insight. And Patsy, you're on mute. Um. Good morning, and thank you, uh, Tammy, for being with us today. And just naturally, I have a number of questions, and but also thoughts on just what you're sharing, and we could perhaps talk about it at another time. But um, it sounds like uh, from what you've shared with us that the role of the children of these missing um, family members is significant. I'm curious what you see in the valley here, both Upper and Yakima, uh, in terms of partnerships to address violence in our community? What is being done with these partner agencies that exist? To your knowledge, what are you aware of that's going on to address violence? I mean, we have similar situations going on all around the Valley. Thank you, Patsy. Yeah, and that's a that's a great question. And you know, the first thing that popped into my head was something that I reported on before the pandemic, which is kind of the way the world is now, isn't it? Pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, but we're still in it. So I met a man, um, his name's Chevy Cortez, and he was a former gang member who just, uh, he, he got out. Um, and then after he, you know, made it beyond some of his uh, choices in life, he's very successful, but he wanted to give back. And what he's doing is uh, he was, getting young men, uh, boys and young men together for weekend basketball games. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but at the same time, he was actually actively asking uh, gang members, younger gang members or potential gang members to get together and just play basketball. And, you know, that's, that's stuck in my, that kind of popped into my head because you hear a lot about organizations, Project Safe, you hear about all these different organizations. Sometimes it gets very bureaucratic. And, and what's the real ground level work that's happening? Are you, how are you helping address this? How are you making others see that we're all people, we're all here together? And his efforts with that, I thought were amazing. And he, he'll have, um, he would have a few dozen kids there. And he wasn't the only one. There were other adults who were supervising, and it was at a public school area in a gym. But that was the first thing that I thought about. Um, 
I know that other organizations like the White Swan Community Coalition have been supportive of the, the skate park and other public areas where young people can get together. But uh, frankly, it's it's those kind of responses, Patsy, that just popped into my head. Um, I tend to kind of, my eyes tend to kind of glaze over when organizations form sometimes because again, I'm skeptical of the real hands-on work. Um, but, and I could think of other things. I know there are arts groups too that uh, try to get people together, but I do think there needs to be much more interaction again between um, the upper and lower valleys. And I need to check with Chevy to see how they're doing that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so in your description that you're talking about, you know, it could be very bureaucratic but it sounds like with the work that's going on with this particular case that the agencies appear to be trying to come together. And I'm wondering what, you know, what are some of the learnings that can occur from this, which is very unusual, as you said, but everyone, it sounds like, is going through this process of attempting to work together. Um, yeah, I... And I now I'm really wondering. I need to check with him to find out how he's doing. But I just, you know, being a reporter since 1989, and I've seen again, I organizations come and go. People talk a lot. Politicians can talk a lot. Uh, people can start groups. Um, but frankly, um, I think what people need to learn is you you need to bring together the people that you're trying to help but it just seems odd to me that some of these groups are a lot of people talking around a table and and they're leaders in the community and it's important that they get together but um it, it needs to be more than just meetings uh i do also think that uh, maybe some of these events could be bigger public events where information can be provided I remember I was down at uh, Granger at the radio station for something. It's been a few months ago, and I was surprised there were all these tents, and there was a, it was like a, uh, a community market, but it was something they do on a regular basis there at the radio station, and I'd heard nothing about it, and I, I almost wish that uh, that could be a thing, not just tied to a community market, but maybe its own little get together. Um, I'm not an expert on this by far, but I just, it seems to me the success, the real success, the breakthroughs happen when the people who are supposed to be impacted by all these meetings and leadership um, actually get together and realize, get to know each other, I guess. Um, again, as community members, we're all here, so. Well, thank you. Uh for the conversations about this as well. Thank you. Thank you, Patsy. Yeah, um, I wanna pivot back real quickly to the article and something that was brought up and I'm gonna ask that um, Robin actually bring this question up. Um, go ahead, Robin, you're on mute. Hi, thanks. Uh, so, you know, of course, reading the article, uh, there were talks and I'll be honest, I'll just be honest as a community member, this is something that always circulates and I know people are afraid to bring it up. It's just that there's a, either a theory or things point to possible serial killers or serial killer um, between like the, the 1980s um, that could be either operating on the reservation, near the reservation or through the reservation, you know, and the fact that uh, where uh, Parker Doe was found, you know, there were other uh, women found there as well, you know, who had been murdered. And um, side thing here is also mentioned is how um, the Golden State Killer was found and um, through DNA tests. So despite all of these years since the 80s, since he had been operating, finding uh, him and his identity out had to be through DNA testing. But I also want to speak to a little bit how reluctant Native people are in terms of just giving out their DNA in general. You know, uh, there's also been studies about how Native people also don't like to donate organs. You know, a lot of it is religious based, uh, cultural based, 
uh, as well as just, I, I mean, just speaking as a Native person, it's like Native bodies have been so violated over the years, it's like, we don't want to do that anymore. But I don't know if you could t either speak to um, the article you had written about Parker Doe and possible like serial killer and, and maybe a location or things like that, or even about DNA and things like that. You're on mute, Tammy. Thank you. Okay. Um, Robin, thank you for bringing up the DNA because that's interesting. I have even, I have friends who've done the ancestry, the 23andMe thing, um, and the ancestry efforts through DNA. And I haven't gotten to that one yet because I'm reluctant. I, um, uh, reading that book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, it kind of makes you wonder what happens to your DNA after you provide it, even though you provided it willingly and she didn't. Um, and I'm not sure, that might be something that I need to address better in future stories because DNA is really crucial and I can understand the reluctance, again, coming from my own reluctance. Um, I, when I went to one of the state patrol's labs, oh gosh, it's been a couple years ago, I had to provide a DNA swab and I thought that was kind of weird. And they're like, we ask everybody to do it. And I said, okay. But um, your question about serial killers is a persistent question, even though the FBI has said back in the mid 2000s, they said that there was no evidence of a serial killer. We do know that there was a uh, a serial killer operating. His name is John Bill Fletcher Jr. Now he's the one who was responsible for the ladies who were found near Parker Doe's location. And he had a very uh, uh, predictable MO method of, uh, you know, operation. That was his area. He, he um, got ladies, they would come with him willingly, but they, he always went to that same area. And then he tried, um, he, he murdered two women. Um, he tried to murder two other women that we know of. And an investigator, a retired investigator with the sheriff's office believes that he may have been responsible for other murders when he made his way from Texas, where he had been paroled in 1986 uh, to Yakima. And he came here because he had uh, connections, family connections, I believe. And that investigator, Rod Shaw, has said that he thinks uh, Mr. Fletcher might have been. He's a suspect in Parker Doe's case, let's say. But there are, and Emily and I have talked about this before, there are several other cases that have striking similarities. And they, uh, several women were strangled. Um, and they were left in, they were discovered in remote locations. Um, we have heard at different times that, uh, and different law enforcement has said this, that they thought uh, an older man was preying on vulnerable women in the lower valley. He would be in places where they might be. I, I've heard different things about uh, ladies pool tournaments at different uh, taverns and such, and that he would know that he could go there and, prey on, there would be women who were vulnerable. So I don't, again, that's still, we, the FBI did say when they released the results of a big investigation they had back in the uh, early 2000, early 2008, I believe, it was a two-year investigation. They said that they had developed uh, suspects, potential suspects in, I believe, three of the cases, but for lack of evidence, uh, they did not follow through um, on a, making an arrest. Uh, we do know that sometimes uh, people have been found in remote locations and there's not uh, sufficient evidence to uh, meet federal prosecution standards, I guess, uh, or police standards. But I, I, <laughs> I'm no investigator, but hearing the similarities in some of these cases really makes you wonder. When you're talking about cases, I I want to acknowledge that the Yakima Herald Republic is one of the only local uh, newspapers that I'm aware of that actually publishes and updates an ongoing list of missing uh, tribal members, missing women, as well as cases, unsolved cases, homicide cases, um, and cases in progress and solved cases. And um, I wonder if we can go have you go through this uh, vanish list and then I'll check in with my co-hosts to see if they have any other um, 
insights after you. And if we have anybody from our live audience that has any questions or insights as well. Sure. So, and, you know, I just, it, Emily, when we've talked about this issue, it's always been a kind of, I want to respect the privacy of families. Not every family, as we've all talked about, not every family wants to share the information about their loved one. They're maybe not ready to talk about it, or maybe they don't ever want to talk about it. And I always respect that. I, I really, um, it comes down to whether, you know, they want to speak or not. I just feel it's important to get these ladies' stories and their information out here and make others aware of who they were and why this is, when you start to go through this list, you realize this is, this is unfortunately a long list. And so when I started on this issue again, after we, Emily, after we had started talking about it, after you had started telling me more about it, I started pulling some records from archives and that's how I started building this list. And I didn't really think much about it. I thought, well, if I'm going to be reporting on this issue, we should know who some of these ladies were. And so I started building it that way. And then I have, um, so we thought it was important to delineate um, some women are missing, some have, uh, they have been determined as homicides. Sometimes that changes. We know that there have been cases where at first it was undetermined and then later they said a, a possible homicide or probable homicide, that sort of thing. So that can change. That uh, That's not set in stone either. But I thought it was important to include the mysterious deaths as well, because these are families dealing with loss and their deaths are suspicious. Uh, there's something that was, there are unanswered questions. It's not clear. And you can certainly, it can be more challenging with older uh, cases. Again, with the lack of evidence and, and depending on um, what investigators find. But I also thought it was important to include, and, and this list is nowhere, we know it's not complete, and we'll never say that it is because we know it's not. Um, there are cases I know of that people haven't spoken of and they would not prefer to have them on there. But um, I thought it was important to put the court cases in there as well because those are happening. Uh, COVID has severely delayed, as expected, uh, some of the, the progress of some of these cases. Um, but we're hopeful those will eventually make their way to the court system and justice will be served. And then I thought it was important to note that there are also closed cases. Um, I do have a couple that I need to add to the list and I will do that at some point. But I just hope this list, I don't mean it to be triggering and I know it can be and probably has been, but I think it's important again to see for the community to see this list. This is a long list. This is a lot of women. This is a lot of uh, ladies and girls who uh, the families don't have answers and there's no justice and they need to know that that's happening. And for me, again, seeing the list grow has just been, uh, that's just another way that I can stress how important this is, I guess. So. <clears throat> it is a long list. I wanna turn it to my co-host for additional insight or questions. I don't have a question, just a comment, uh, Tammy, uh, and of course my sisters on this list, Daisy May Heath. And um, I think just each one of these cases have its own unique um, variables about it. You know, you were talking about the role of the FBI and the role of the various law enforcement agencies. Um, our experience has not been a positive experience with law enforcement. Um, and so I'm just curious, uh, you know, at what level are each of these cases at and what kind of communication has gone on with families? I mean, that's, I know, very challenging because it's a case by case issue, but it's one um, I think that deserves respect, as you said earlier, it just feels like in, you know, some of the cases that the respect hasn't been shown. Um, just some examples are, I did give um, DNA uh, for, to, you know, in support of my sister and did not get a response back, you know, from law enforcement. And I didn't do it once, I, I did it twice. And there wasn't a response. And, there's just an issue with communication, one that I've um, addressed, you know, not only um, 
you know, with other agencies, but also, you know, with federal officials as well, uh, because of the lack of communication that goes on. And I think that's the major frustration is just the lack of communication that occurs. And so I think, you know, what we're attempting to do here with Warcry is to be able to communicate some of this information that hasn't been available for families. And, and I recognize it is triggering because we are all at different places. You know, even in our families, we're all at different places in terms of you know, our own personal reconciliation, if, if any, in our lifetime. But I, again, I just wanna say, I think it's important to, to talk about as well. Um, and I think um, with regard to just, um, you know, working with families, um, just with my own uh, public, well, with my own adult children and adult nephews and nieces who were children when my sister went missing, I know it's a real challenge and it's difficult to be able to talk about uh, these kind of issues. But for families, I think it's important that we continue communicating with one another just as the law enforcement agencies are you know, talking with one another. But as you're going through that process with Parker Doe, I think it's important that that communication process be shared with us as well as families. I think that is so key, you know, to be shared with the community. And I think that's simply what we're trying to do is, you know, be uh, open-minded in sharing this information with one another because for too long, this, this silence has been, you know, hasn't helped us. I was going to ask a question, but I went off. Sorry. Okay. We can come back. Lucy? I, so, I mean, you had mentioned John Bill Fletcher Jr. Uh, so what, what happened to him? He is currently at the Monroe Correctional Center, and his earliest possible release date is September of 2032. Um, it's interesting when we talk about that he was convicted uh, for two of the cases of the ladies who were found near where where Doe was found. Um, his conviction didn't come until I, I want to say um, the early 2000s. And I, I brought some notes with me, but I, I'm not going to kind of a pile here. Um, what had happened was uh, those ladies had been found. Um, but they, their killer remained unknown for some time. He actually went to prison in early 1989 for uh, rape and attempted murder, I believe. I would need to double check those charges for one of the ladies that he tried, that he took there and tried to kill. So um, he was in the correctional system. He had provided DNA and they later, as part of, I believe, the FBI investigation in the uh, mid-2000s, um, compared his DNA, and they, they convicted, well, he, he pled guilty, they convicted him because his DNA matched DNA that was taken from those scenes. But, uh, so that was added on to his sentence that he already had. Um, I had someone ask me, they thought that he had a life sentence and I never saw that anywhere. But I was surprised to see that basically 10 years he could be out. And if I recall correctly, he's in his mid sixties. So, I mean, he is an man, but um, that's where he is right now, Monroe. Yep. And he won't talk to anybody. We've tried to, I haven't personally tried to talk to him, but law enforcement has tried to talk to him over and over and over again through the years about Parker Doe, and he won't talk to anybody about it. So, yeah. Thank you for that insight. Uh, Patsy, did you remember your question? Oh, no. I was looking at my notes trying to, what was my question? I'll come back to it. Thank you. Okay. Um, I want to thank each of our uh, five people that are watching. Our producer has let us know, and thank you very much for joining us on this live stream. Again, we're talking to Tammy Ayer about um, her coverage of missing and murdered Indigenous women in the Yakima Valley and Yakima's in urban areas, uh, with particular emphasis on 
the unidentified woman in uh, the Parker area, uh, also referred to as Parker Doe. Okay, I just want to open it up to see if any of the, you got it? Uh, yes, so Tammy, I wanted to ask you about your background in history. Uh, you said you got your, you know, your bachelor's and your master's in history. I'm curious why you're going through that process, how you got steered in this direction. What steered you toward the work that you're doing today, uh, particularly in history, because, you know, when I think about history and how it's taught in our mainstream institutions, it's not going to address Native history or Indigenous history at all. So I'm curious how you got steered this way. Well, so Patsy, I've always um, been interested in history. I've always been a bit of a historian. And I, I at one point thought that I wanted to go on and get my PhD and be a professor. So that's kind of how I got started in, in college. And, um, I, but I've always been interested in women's history. And I'm of the Howard Zinn School of History. He wrote A People's History of the United States. Uh, and I met him and I was just really inspired again to tell the stories of real people. It gets very tiresome to read over and over the same names and the same people. I'm not interested necessarily in military history or political history, that sort of thing. I want to hear the history of real people. Like, what was it? I'm always the one asking the question, what was it like to live like then at that time? Um, and then when I came here, I, I've always kind of, I consider myself a historian. I'm a journalist and a historian, but I'm recording history for now for the future. And it's important for us as journalists to be as accurate as possible, but also to tell as many stories, to tell the story of the community as completely as possible. And to be honest, uh, my coverage of uh, missing and murdered indigenous women basically started with a, a story assignment. Uh, the editor came up to me and he had a press release from Gina Mossbrucker that said that was when she was uh, proposing her legislation for the the Washington State Patrol's uh, data report that came out uh, more than a year after that. And of course, that's been discussed at length. But um, again, it, you know, he asked me to write this press release. And that's when I started reaching out to people Emily, and others and started learning and hearing some of these stories. And frankly, I was just shocked. Again, I was just and then so that at that point, that kind of here's a topic that needs to be more completely reported and at the same time i'm interested in the the, the women's lives uh, who's you know all women i again it needs to be complete it doesn't <laughs> history needs to be everybody so that um, kind of launched me the, the nexus of those two things really got me interested in this topic that it needed to be reported more completely. It needed to be t told as completely as possible. And then I won't ever forget that first state patrol meeting that they had back in our, you know, October was at 2018, I believe. Uh, so many people came to that, that they had to expand the room. There were people standing outside and to hear those stories that just really, at that point, I was just super focused. I said, this is gonna be, I'm gonna focus on this as long as I can, because it needs to be, these stories need to be told. And I have seen over the past couple of years, more people have come forward. But yeah, you're pulling up this original story and that historical background there. It's not just the last 50 years. It's not just the last 60 years. This has been going on for centuries and that needs to be told too. We, we also do need to uh, report on older. I personally know of an older case. I haven't gotten it documented yet. It might've been in the 1940s or 50s where a man was suspected of killing his um, wife and daughter, and they were indigenous. So um, there's so many more threads out there. Mm -hmm. I told people I could write about this topic full time. I, I can't do that because we're trying to cover the community as completely as possible. COVID has affected that, all kinds of things. And I do write about other issues, but I try to write about this as much as I can because there are many more stories to tell. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I was just curious where that spark came from, but and appreciate it though. And thank you for being, you know, doing this important work and doing it in a respectful way. Thank you. Yeah, the I want to add on to that that the valid 
I mean, what this was essentially doing was a validation of our oral and our historical accounts of the Yakima War. And the reason why the Yakima War started was about violence against Yakima women. And we have all these different history books that are written and very few reference that. And so to have an article that reaffirms that stretching back over 165 years, this is real. I mean, the title of that article, I mean, it just blew everybody away. I mean, I still, I'm at a powwow in a different place. This is before everything shut down and people are referencing your articles and in reference to the violence that's taking place and the awareness that's building. I think of the families that don't have to reiterate and keep saying, um, keep talking about, you know, the dates and the specifics that has happened to their families because they have a news organization that has verified that and validated that. And unfortunately in this community and in this system, that's questioned sometimes. Yeah. And because there's a, a primary source information, you know, we see students writing about this more, able to do presentations from, um, you know, K-12 through college. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a really, it really is a pivot point in how we do reporting in the Yakima Valley about these cases, I feel like. Well, and I have to say, I'm really proud to be part of that. I'm glad that um, I've been part of that correction and that greater awareness. Um, yeah. Okay. Does anybody else have any other comments? Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Robin. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, just comments. And again, I want to uh, echo what Patsy said. Thank you so much for doing this work. And I really appreciate you recognizing like the, the void of uh, indigenous voices and bringing them to light. Uh, we do always need those allies to recognize that so that we can um, have that ability to break through those ceilings. And again, like Emily said, to validate all of the stories that we have been telling and that we know uh, through our own history and oral history and kind of bringing that to light as well. Um, and then again, just final um, comment is, again, thank you as well for taking those precautions and reporting uh, respectfully because I know that's something that isn't always done. Um, we can understand that as well as a group, how we wanna be extremely respectful to families. And so some, sometimes for us, that even means not showing those stories because you know people are in their different, um, like in their different spaces and, and where they are with either grief or with dealing with what had happened. And so um, we really appreciate that at least for myself in this outlet with you is the fear that this is going to be blown out or or misrepresented isn't uh, present you know here because that's something that always is like oh they're going to misconstrue everything that's being saying and that's it's a part of one of the enemy and what kind of lets these cases go on as well it's just the misreporting and misrepresentation and misinformation that goes on uh, right. to the press um and uh and it's just i didn't know you had a history background and that's really awesome so <laughs> we're all a bunch of history nerds and buffs here <laughs> yeah but thank you tammy so much thank you thank you all thank you and i just wanted to add i didn't touch on this particular question but um uh the individuals that are listed are predominantly women in in my work that i've been doing with education and uh, the identification of particularly students, but it, it, this impacts all Native people. It's just the identification of our people and the underrepresentation or the misclassification of our people is also a major issue too. And so I find in you know in working with schools that it's important for us to help support our young people so that they know how they identify as a, a Native person. And, um, and I just wanted to share that while we might be on the Yakima reservation in our traditional territories, that doesn't mean we don't have other tribal people that are living here as well. And they also have family members wherever they come from who may be missing and are murdered as well. I'm just, and several of us come from diverse backgrounds uh, too. 
And so there's this diversity that we each bring to this discussion and interrelationships, intertribal relationships that we have. Um, I always share that um, my the family descendancy that I have with my children and my my grandchildren and great grandchildren covers pretty much the entire Western states, plus Canada and native Hawaii. And, and so my I've got grandchildren, great-grandchildren that extend their lineage that far. And so if I'm just one person, what about uh, the other people that are living here on the Yakima Indian Reservation in, in our, our traditional territories? So Tammy, there's more work for you to do. <laughs> Quite a bit, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. One more. I have a I have a comment, just some insight. Um, so first, Tammy, I know this may be another conversation, but I would love to hear about some of the adversity that you've experienced while reporting this information, um, particularly in the Yakima Valley. Again, that could be another conversation. Um, and like Patsy had passed you, I'm gonna also task you <laughs> and us, uh, you know, another piece of really um, expanding our list to our missing and murdered indigenous men and also to our, you know, two-spirit and LGBTQ community, because at times I feel, you know, we're totally underrepresented and now we kind of have this platform and it's like, oh, we got traction. And so, um, and I would, I think we would all be willing to work on that in some way or form, um, you know, to really start seeking out some things. Um, and lastly, uh, what we like to ask or what we like to try to ask is um, when we remember is what do you do for self-care during such heavy topics such as this? Oh, yeah. Um, I run. I'm a runner. So that's for me my kind of... Uh, it's been really important during COVID, but yeah, I, I find myself... Um, I'll go out and I might be out for hours and I'll just be kind of... Uh, going through things or talking myself through things. That's really how I do it. But, uh, and when I, if I'm not running and I have a little time, I do like to read nonfiction, more history. <laughs> That's what I do for fun too. So um, yeah, but for me being physical and being out there and running is, has really been helpful. Yeah. That's what I do. Thank you so much um, for sharing that. And uh <laughs> I haven't marked, worked up to running yet. I'm still walking. I don't know about anybody else. If we have any other runners here. Uh, no? Okay. Um, oh, Kathy is too. Okay. Um, and again, Yakima Herald Republic is one of the only local newspapers in the country to publish uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women names uh, of the missing and the ongoing cases. Uh, Tammy Ayer is the reporter there. You can contact her at T Ayer at yakimaherald.com. Uh, Yakima Herald's Republic's Banished webpage includes numerous articles written by Tammy, and you can also find Tammy's upcoming article about the unidentified woman, uh, also called Parker Doe, soon. Again, she's been uh, unidentified for 33 years, and she needs a name. Her family has been waiting uh, for answers. I'm going to read actually a little bit from the vanished uh, page. Much work still needs to be done to protect Native women, and many questions must be answered. It's a start, supporters say, a start that encourages those who still wonder what happened to their loved ones and hope to save others. They are missing and murdered Native women and girls, mothers, grandmothers, daughters, and sisters aunties, friends. They have names, they have stories, and they are no longer invisible. And we are an Indigenous-led podcast sur surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. I'm Emily Washings, and thank you to the War Cry uh, co-hosts, Robin, Lucy, and Patsy. And thank you again to our guest, Tammy Ayer. For our credits, we have support from Native Women in Action. This is 
This episode is edited and produced by Robin Kibishi. A logo and shirts by John Only Schellenberger with Native Anthro. Uh, some shirts by Nicole Pibishi and music by Lee Sikakwaktiwa. Again, you can stream our uh, podcast at all available streaming platforms and YouTube. Let us uh, leave us a comment and let us know where you're tuning in from.